Talk 1110-993 WBT. It's uh, it's actually it's Tuesday at two o'clock, and that means we speak with the speaker. Uh, well, maybe that could be the name of the segment. Welcome back to the program, North Carolina Speaker of the House Tim Moore. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Pete. I hope you're well today. I am. I am. Uh, I couldn't help but notice uh, the photo from this weekend. Uh, you know how you can tell that uh, uh, Representative Sane is a former radio guy, is the shirts that he wears to racing events. What? <laughs> you, know, you know, he definitely has a face for radio. No he does, question. He, he certainly, well, we've talked about it. At like, no, so I saw the picture. Where were you at the, the Roval race, right? We did. Went, uh, yeah, there was a group of folks that went over to the Roval. Great race. Uh, it was really exciting to, uh, to see that. It was a, uh, I noticed several of my... Uh, uh, and I don't know why, but several of my female colleagues were more interested in meeting James Bond than the uh, than watching the race. That's what they kept asking me. You got you got any pull speaker? Can you get us in with James Bond? And un- unfortunately, uh, 003 couldn't get them connected with 007. So whoa, whoa, whoa. Short right. on it this time. Wait a minute, wait a minute. 003, that's you? I, that's what they said the other day. I guess that was number three. So there you go, right? So that's it. Wait a minute. So how I got? It. So why are you? Where does the O three come from? Where does the? Where does the? How do you get in? In the? Uh, how do you get that number? It, it, it's a secret, I'd tell you, but then you'd be in trouble. Well, yeah. Well, and I did say, er, yeah, I did say earlier in the program that I do not engage in espionage, so I probably shouldn't even be asking these questions. So. Uh, all right, so where are we? Uh, because I know uh, a lot of times elected officials love negotiating through the uh, the media. So uh, where are we on the uh, on the budget negotiations with the governor and the Senate? So uh, we 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 received an offer back from the governor with, uh, and, and there was a lot in it. And so we took that, and we've we've talked with our folks and our and uh, our caucus and our conferees and to get a response to where the house is. And so we're, we're close to having something. And then we have to go back with the Senate. They've done the same and uh, see if we can all come up with a, a response to send over to the governor, uh, hopefully here very soon uh, to, to move this along. But I'll tell you, it's, it's a, it's really a good budget that uh, was passed by the Senate and passed by the house. Uh, the, the one passed by the house is a little better than the one in the Senate, but hey, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, I think the combination as we make the sausage is going to be great because it does so many things. Pete. It's going to lower taxes. Uh, it's, it's, we've also put in there restrictions on a lot of these mandates and things the governor has sought to do, uh, put that in there. We've, we've controlled spending, but at the same time, we've taken a lot of those funds that are coming in that we can use and putting them to things that are needed, like one, you know, using one-time money for one-time uh, spending things like you know fixing roads, bridges, uh, infrastructure, broadband, et cetera. So uh, really a lot of shared priorities, but... Uh, uh, the governor's got some entitlement programs he wants to talk about. He's not as keen on lowering taxes, and there's some different things he wants to spend money on. So, you know, we just got to work those things out. And, uh, but I do, I am optimistic that we will get get to a budget because there's just too much. This is a unique opportunity to do so so many good things for the state. And uh, I think, particularly if you contrast it with just the absolute goat rodeo of what's happening in, in Washington right now, where you know these guys just can't seem to control their spending. They want to tax everybody. They want to punish folks. And it's just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, so I, what I can tell folks is we're going to do a whole lot better job than the federal government, which I guess that's kind of setting the bar pretty low. But uh, <laughs> we're going to do a much better job than that. Uh, and I think folks will be very pleased with where we are and, and where we go with the funding. So but 
right now, the SAS negotiations, you're just having a lot of candid conversations uh, to, to try to work through what can be some pretty sticky issues. And mm-hmm. so, we, so we actually are not doing those in the media because it just makes it difficult. But we are having some very good uh, one-on-one and face-to-face conversations about these matters. Right. And, and I understand the limitations. I get that. I'm not going to, you know, uh, it's not... It's not worth a, a, a scoop or a story if it blows up your negotiations. I, I, I'm fine with that. But um, there, I think we've talked about this before. There are policies that are in the House and Senate version that the uh, the governor's not keen on. And so is the is the bet there? And I guess maybe this is the political side of it. Is the is the bet that the governor needs a win on a budget before he's out of office if he ever intends to run for something else like? He's he's got to get something with his name on it, and this might be the last chance to do so. You know, I, I think if if I were the governor, I would certainly be looking at it that way. You know, we passed uh, the last full budget that we passed. We passed that over the objections of the governor. Uh, that was the, that lowered taxes, that spent money in the right areas, it did a lot of great things, reduced regulations. We overrode the governor's veto. Then you look at the at the last session. Uh, where we did not have the supermajority to be able to override his veto. Um, basically, what we passed was a continuing resolu- resolution that essentially kept in place the Republican budget of, of the previous session uh, during that second part, during the, uh, I guess, the second half of his first term. So now we're in, he's in his, uh, the first, that first half of his uh, second term now, and we, we would like to come up with something that, that he would sign that we can all agree on. But if not, uh, we actually feel like we, I can tell you this, in the House, uh, we have the votes to override a veto if it happens. Uh, the Senate, uh, I think, is a little closer call, but I think ultimately they do. But let's say that we didn't. Let's say that the governor vetoed the budget. We couldn't override. We ended up having basically adopt another continuing resolution to take us into the next uh, cycle. Well, the next budget cycle, just about anybody who follows politics would agree you're probably going to have, just because of it being midterm elections, the party in power, and frankly, just how far to the left Joe Biden has gone. It should be a strong election year for Republicans. And I firmly believe that you'll see super majorities in the House and the Senate. And so you could have yet another situation where Governor Cooper is confronted with the facts that he had when he first came to, to, to the governor's mansion, where he's dealing with a supermajority Republican legislature that will be able to override his veto and thereby him having zero influence over eight years in the budget of the state. I don't think he wants that. I want to see us get something done. And I think in the end, that'll be the key to seeing that we, uh, uh, seeing that we get a budget enacted. So, and uh, real quick, I think we touched on this a little bit last week as well. The, um, the big energy plan, right? This got, uh, this was the second iteration of the energy plan, I believe. Uh, it was. So, well, what this was, we passed a bill in the house uh, for the energy bill uh, it went to the Senate. It was changed. And, of course, they consulted with us as they were working through it with the Senate and the stakeholders. And we agreed to those changes. And then it came back to the House and we concurred. And so what you had is you had a really good process where you, you have a bill and you go through the committee process, you go through the stakeholder process, you get public input. In the end, you have a bill that passed overwhelming. I think it passed like 90 to 20 in the House. So very strong votes on both sides of the aisle. Uh, it was just very solid. Of course, the governor's indicated he's going to sign the bill as well. I think it passed like 47 to 2 or uh, maybe 42 to 7 actually in the uh, in the Senate, but just overwhelming, uh, overwhelming votes. And that shows that that's a pretty good consensus bill. And you think about that. Think about the paralysis 
uh, of Washington that can't get any bill passed hardly. And here in North Carolina, in a period of a few months, we've passed legislation that will uh, you know, ensure that, that we have safe, uh, reliable, and affordable energy to everyone, which is key. And at the same time that we do recognize that we owe a duty of responsibility to protect our natural resources. So there, there's balance in there. There's there's room for green energy, but at the same time, we're realistic in knowing that it needs to be an all-of-the-above energy policy that includes, for example, uh, includes coal, includes fossil fuels, and also includes nuclear, as well as green energy. All right. Uh, the Speaker of the North Carolina House, Tim Moore, a.k.a. 003. Thank you, sir. We appreciate your time. <laughs> hey, thanks. All right. Great to be with you. All right. You too. So there's a state senator named Ben Clark. The Ben Clark Five, I believe. And uh, he put out a tweet this afternoon uh, touting the first draft of his redistricting map in the North Carolina General Assembly. It's a 7-7 map, which would mean, so that would be seven Republicans, seven Democrats in the congressional delegation, right? So 14 total congressional districts, seven would go for Democrats, and seven would go for Republicans. Anybody see the problem with this? State lawmakers are not supposed to be using partisan data in the redistricting process. Oops! Ben Clark! Democrat, so nobody will care. But this is what the Democrats sued over the last time. I know it gets confusing. They've sued so many different times and made so many different arguments about why they should have the majority of seats and the map should help them do that. But the last argument was that partisan data should not be used. You should not be drawing district lines uh, in order to make sure that the, uh, the districts go to a certain party. And so they won that state Supreme Court that the Democrats run. They ruled in favor of the Democrats on that one. And then so they were like, well, that's what the Constitution says. We think we just make up. So that's now the law. That's the rule. And so the Republicans were like, fine, we won't use uh, partisan data. And uh, now apparently uh, Ben Clark used partisan data to <laughs> draw his <laughs> to draw his proposed map. Um, now, uh, Stephen Wiley who uh, works for, uh, he's actually the caucus director of the North Carolina House GOP. And uh, uh, one of the reasons why the Republicans actually have the majority that they do, uh, he said a reminder also that uh, Democrats tried to argue that the court order telling the Republicans when you draw these maps you can't use the partisan data, that the Democrats argued uh, that, this was two years ago, that they were not bound by that court ruling because the ruling was only for the Republicans because they were the defendants in the lawsuit. So Democrats could keep drawing based on partisan data. Republicans could not, though. This was literally what they argued from the floor of the Senate, which is very much on brand uh, for Democrats to make the argument that the rules should not apply to them. All right. So uh, in the last hour, in the one o'clock hour, I was going over this story. This is uh, a piece by Luke Rosiak. The website is dailywire.com. The headline is Loudoun County Schools Tried to Conceal Sexual Assault Against Daughter in Bathroom, Father Says. So there's a guy by the name of Scott Smith. His daughter was uh, reportedly raped by a trans girl, so a boy to girl. Don't know if 
this person is, you know, legitimately transitioning or what, but that's what the father says. This girl, his daughter was assaulted in a female bathroom in the girl's room at the school a month before a school board meeting occurred where the school district officials were berating parents over their opposition to the transgender policies that the board was about to adopt. And the school board and the district officials were arguing that there were no cases, there were no examples of any kinds of violence being perpetrated against girls by boys under the guise of these transgender protections. Okay? And so this guy, this dad, is at that meeting. And he's saying that's not true. Some left-winger gets up into his face. They start yelling. Cops grab him. He pulls his hand away. They throw him to the ground. They drag him out, arrest him. The DA, the prosecutor up there, who is pals with the leftists on the school board, then prosecutes him for the disrupting of the public meeting, personally goes to court to try to prosecute him, knowing full well that his daughter was assaulted. And by the way, the school district was going to handle it all, quote, in-house, but mom and dad raised such a stink that the cops got called to the high school while they were there. Cops get called. They then escort the parents to the hospital, and that now puts it into the criminal justice system. Because otherwise it wouldn't have gone into the criminal justice system. It would have been handled in-house by the school district. Same school board, same left-wing actors on the school board that uh, had recently won election. They are all in a Facebook group. Also in that group, the prosecutor. And they're all talking about how can we hack into the other Facebook group, these other websites that the anti-CRT parents are running, right? Because these are the parents that have formed an opposition to the leftist agenda that is being uh, promoted at the school board meetings. And I'll get into some of the details on the recent elections that put the leftists in charge. So you've got this opposition among parent groups. They're showing up. And the school board members and this prosecutor are part of what the critics call the Chardonnay Antifa. And they're like, how can we find out who these people are, where they work? Let's get them fired. Let's get them canceled, right? Let's target them. This is the backdrop of what is all occurring. Talk 1110-993 WBT. It's the Pete Callender Show, and I'm the Pete Callender. And the story is from the Daily Wire, dailywire.com by Luke Rosiak, giving the background on um, the... Yeah, you, oh, sorry, hang on a second. I will do this. I can hear that buzz. I'll just do that. There we go. So now the buzz occurs when I don't have it plugged in. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Um... So the story is uh, about this Loudoun County, Virginia school board meeting. And it really became, it was sort of frontline. Uh, it was epicenter of the critical race theory blowback. And to understand, uh, this is not just the blowback uh, 
because of critical race theory, but there was also an election that was held. And that agenda that came from those elected prompted the blowback, okay? But the guy who became sort of the poster child for uh, the, you know, these enraged white, uh, uh, right-wing Trump-loving blue-collar, you know, white supremacist, racism-denying, knuckle-dragging cretins. Like, like that's this guy, his name is Scott Smith. And he was at this Loudoun County school board meeting back in June. And he was there trying to tell people that his daughter had been sexually assaulted under the by a, by a male student under this guise of transgenderism. And that was on the agenda for discussion for that night. And he's then being called a liar. His daughter's being called a liar at this meeting. Cops then grab him. He pulls his arm away. Cops then take him to the ground, drag him out, arrest him. And he has served, according to Luke Rosiak at the Daily Wire, he has served as a two-dimensional caricature for a variety of ideologues all over the world for three months. No one knew what happened, but they were sure that they knew exactly who he was anyway, and they hated him. This line stood out for me. This is like a seven-page article, but this line particularly stood out for me because it reminded me of a conversation I had with a, uh, it's a, a member of my family's friend. Okay, so a, a family member's friend who we were uh, out to eat with, and this was during the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing. I was in Asheville. They had come to Asheville to visit, and this friend was from New York, and she was talking about what was going on with Kavanaugh and all this, and over the course of the discussion, because I had watched every hour of the confirmation hearing, we carried it live. I watched the stuff that wasn't on while my show was on. Like, and I and I fully acknowledge like what the Democrats did and what the media did during the confirmation hearing of Brett Kavanaugh. And I don't care one way or the other about Brett Kavanaugh. It doesn't matter to me. None of his judicial philosophy doesn't matter. His experience, none of that matters to me. The only thing that mattered to me was the way the Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself, behaved. And it radicalized me in a way that was perceptible to me. I could see it. I knew it. And I'd I'd never had that happen to me before. And so she said something at that dinner during this process, during that hearing, that this sentence just uh, reminded me of which was that she had said that she had been victimized. Didn't say how or to what extent or anything like that, but said she knows the type. That's what she said. And that Kavanaugh is just like that type. And that is a terrifying thing to hear someone say, like, cause who, how do you defend yourself against that? How do you defend yourself against somebody just projecting upon you some idea, right? This is why not treating people as an individual is so dangerous, so dangerous. This is how, te- this is how people do terrible things 
at a societal level, by the way. So he goes on to say what has happened in Loudoun, to Loudoun County in the last two years is notable, not because its population is particularly far left, but because it's not. And this has happened anyway. Loudoun is in many ways more typical of America with a politically mixed population. Its western half is bucolic farmland. In 2015, every member of its county board of supervisors was Republican. 2015, so six years later, it's not. Right? Its congresswoman until 2018 was a Republican. In November of 2019, progressive activists won public office in Loudoun with as little as 51% of the vote. And that's what gave them power. Because they had an odd year election, so they had low turnout. And so a small number of people can carry the day. Some of these elections were defined by the brazen intervention of outside interests. It was clear they were often more interested in national politics than in the everyday concerns of local residents. Julie Briskman was a tech worker who happened to be captured by the White House press corps photographers giving the middle finger to Trump's motorcade. Remember this woman? She was riding a bike. She's riding through the country and the motorcade goes past and she flips him off. They get that picture and they're like, oh, my gosh, she's so brave flipping off a passing vehicle. After national left-leaning publications had a bunch of fun with her uh, and the photograph, her local employer fired her. She sets up a GoFundMe. That raises all sorts of money from people all over America. And she then parlays that into a run for the County Board of Supervisors. She wins, turning an obscure position previously concerned largely with activities like paving roads into a soapbox for national partisan affairs. The prosecutor was elected by a 1% margin after George Soros pumped $845,000 into her campaign. Okay. I don't know that. Um, Her opponent, the Republican incumbent, spent 113 grand. That's normal. 100K. Eight times the amount, and she won by 1%, and that's who they got in charge now. But don't, oh, you can't criticize George Soros if you do your an anti-Semite. Right? That's the idea now. Hey, a reminder, by the way, Thursday, 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 it's going to be Talktoberfest. Head on over to the WBT Facebook page, and I believe it is, who is it this, uh, this week? It's Mark Garrison and Brett Jensen, I believe, talking it up, Talktoberfest. I will be... Hanging around in the comment section, throwing out all sorts of questions for Garrison to answer. I don't think he's aware of it. Oh, he's walking by the studio right now. <laughs> Talktoberfest, right? You're doing Talktoberfest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be sending you comments, questions. Yeah, yeah. I'll be doing that and uh, getting my people to ask you questions. So just a heads up. It's gonna be, we're going to turn it into an ask, ask Mark anything. Uh, so that's going to be uh, Thursday, 7.30. I'm a little jealous of Mark, by the way. He got to taste all the, the fair stuff yesterday. Well, let's not, I mean, let's not exaggerate. He didn't taste all the fair stuff. He got to taste some fair food. He got to taste more than us, true. It's, it's more fair food than we had yesterday. Indeed. That's totally, yeah. That's not, it's got, not a bad excursion. You got to have your shake, and I got to go down to the vending machine. And that's it. And he got fair food, <laughs> deep fried Twinkies and such. So... Uh, I'm not going to have time to get to this compendium piece that I had pulled 
uh, to talk about with the Loudoun County deal, but it's okay. It's okay. I'm going to get to it tomorrow, and here's the T's headline. Left-wing authoritarianism is real and needs to be taken seriously in political psychology, according to a new study. So, yeah, spoiler alert. Apparently, left-wing authoritarianism is basically rejected as a as a thing among psychologists. Guys, I, I, I think I've identified a slight problem. <laughs> yeah, all this time, psychologists, they only think that authoritarianism comes from the right? Okay. So, all right, we'll get to that tomorrow, I promise. Um, but let me wrap up real quick on the Loudoun County uh, story, this Loudoun County School District story. So the prosecutor, <clears throat> excuse me, is known for leniency and alternatives to incarceration. For example, back in July, a guy by the name of Peter J. Lalo Brigido was released from jail on a $5,000 unsecured bond while facing charges of strangulation, abduction, and assault on a family member. And uh, within 60 days, he returned to finish the job, killed his wife with a hammer. And then a few days after uh, he was released on August 17th, that was when Smith, the father of the daughter who was victimized at the school, he was in court for two misdemeanors, disorderly conduct and obstruction of justice. His attorney was pretty sure the charges were going to get dropped because the attorney was like, well, just a month before this other guy got out and he was way worse. But instead, the prosecutor actually shows up personally to try the case. The attorney for the Smith family explained in court that her client was angry after his daughter was sexually assaulted in a bathroom by a person identifying as, quote, gender fluid, and remind her, reminded her that prosecutors had substantiated the assault and had chosen to bring charges. But the prosecutor sought jail time against Smith. It is incredibly unusual for a disorderly conduct case to even go forward, the lawyer said. The idea that they would actually be seeking jail time? The lawyer says, in my 15 years, the number of times I've seen that happen would be zero. It would be completely unheard of, uh, unheard of for the prosecutor to handle a misdemeanor too. Because this Bibaraj prosecutor... Like, she is the prosecutor, ran on the platform of not jailing people for minor crimes and for using alternative approaches like restorative justice. The charges against Smith, the dad, were so minor that there was no option to even have a jury trial. And Smith says he would have won that. That option is only available through an appeal, which would cost him thousands of dollars more than he had already spent on legal fees, which had already run up into the thousands. On August 11th, the school board voted to approve the transgender policy. Smith was not allowed to speak. He's actually been banned from the school building, the school board building. They sent him a letter informing him of that. Um, The culprit of the attack on Smith's daughter Uh, was expected to plead guilty on October 14th following the negotiation of a plea agreement. So, what, in two days from now, right? 
But on October 6th, less than a week ago, the sheriff's office put out a press release that led Smith to believe the process was not working. Quote, a teenager from Ashburn, as the school, has been charged with sexual battery and abduction of a fellow student at Broad Run High School. The investigation determined on the afternoon, a 15-year-old suspect forced the victim into an empty classroom, held her against her will, and inappropriately touched her. And this has since been confirmed it's the same boy, which the question then is, what the hell is he doing back in school? What was he doing back in school? And uh, why did the school district try to attempt to, at first, attempt to handle this internally? Dad made such a fuss that the, the cops showed up at the school. The district called the cops to show up. They show up, and they then give the dad an escort with his daughter to the hospital where they get a rape kit, which then puts it into the criminal justice system. And the prosecutor now charges the dad, now is prosecuting the dad, knowing full well all of this backstory. Something is really, really bad in Loudoun County. And I think, just spitballing here, I think it might have something to do with the leftists that took over the school district and the uh, the prosecution's office and the uh, board of supervisors. Two girls sexually assaulted in school four months apart by the same person and so far the only one to be convicted of a crime is one of the victim's fathers. All right. There's the music. That's a wrap for me. Stay tuned. The Brett Winterbull Show is up next on News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. I will talk with you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.